0: And welcome to Meeting Room 7, and welcome back to our podcast series from the IP team at Stevens and Bolton, all about patent and know-how licensing with a life sciences focus. We've called this eighth and last episode, Should I Be Worried About… dot dot dot?" to try and catch some general issues that are often at the back of our minds in this area. I'm Charlie Tillett. I'm partner in the IP team and head of the life sciences group here at Stevens and Bolton. For this episode, I'm joined by two wonderful colleagues from our IP team, Astrid Arnold, Hello, and Melissa Turner. Hello. Today we'll be looking briefly at the impact on patent and know-how licensing of the following four issues: the Unified Patent Court, Brexit, an exclusive licensees standing to sue, and the Technology Transfer Block Exemption Regulation, or the TTBER. So starting with the Unified Patent Court, this is an issue that's really grabbing the headlines at the moment. Astrid, please could you run us through the current state of play?
1: Yes, uh, the Unified Patent Court or, or UPC is a new European patent court system, which is open to all EU member states. The object is to make it easier and more cost effective to litigate patents in Europe. In addition to the new court, A European unitary patent will be introduced. This is a single patent covering all the participating EU27 member states, rather like the EU trademark but for patents. So, so far all the EU27 states except Spain and Poland have signed up to the new court. Uh, So they've indicated that they intend to take part in, in this new system Earlier this year Austria became the 13th Member State to actually deposit its certificate of ratification, and this has triggered the entry into force clause, so now final preparations to make the Court operational are underway. It looks like the Court would probably become operational by early 2023.
0: Okay, so given that the UK is no longer one of the EU member states, how is this relevant to the UK, given that we're not going to be part of the system?
1: Well, it's unusual for business to own patents in only one country. Uh, So many UK patent owning businesses will be directly affected by the UPC. And in fact, most of the patent licenses we see involve multiple jurisdictions. A key issue that's relevant to patent licensing at the moment is the question of opt out. The background to this is that the UPC will involve advantages for patent owners, of course, uh, but there will also be risks. A major risk is that if a European patent is held to be invalid before the UPC, uh, this will result in invalidity of the patent across all the countries participating in the UPC at the relevant time. Currently this would be 13 countries, but this number is expected to increase rapidly as the new court gets underway. Some patent owners are understandably very nervous about exposing their key patents to this risk, particularly before the competency of the court has been demonstrated and before the procedures of the court have been properly bedded in. So life sciences companies are particularly concerned Uh, of course, given the importance of patents in this area. So this is where the opt-out comes in. during a transitional period, patent owners can opt their patents out of the jurisdiction of the new court. It's important to to note that there is no such thing as opt-in. All European patents go in uh, um, automatically into the new court system, unless they're opted out. So this means that on day one, for example, a third party could commence proceedings for revocation before the UPC. It'll then be too late to opt the relevant patent out. That patent will be stuck in the jurisdiction of the new court. So this means that patent owners who wish to opt out any of their patents should do so in the three month sunrise period before the new court becomes operational. So that's patent owners, how does it affect patent licensees or licences? And it's not only the patentee, of course, who may be affected by the opt-out. Licensees also have an interest in whether the patent can be litigated in the new system. Powerful licensees may seek licensing terms, giving them a say in whether the patents are opted out or not.
0: Okay, great. So that's a brilliant background and catch up and we've set set the scene there. Um, so thinking now in particular in terms of a patent license agreement, what sort of terms should licensees seek to cover on this issue?
1: Well, only the patent owner themselves can actually opt the patent out. At the extreme, we'd expect to see powerful licensees simply requiring the licensor either to opt out or to, to stay in, of course. But more likely or more usual would be that the patent license would include some kind of obligation to consult um, with the licensee before deciding on opt out. I think it's important to to note here that the UPC agreement gives an exclusive licensee an independent right to take action against infringers. That's the same as we see in the UK Patents Act in relation to national patents. At this point needs to be addressed in, in the license agreement because um, if a licensee acting independently starts proceedings in the UPC there's obviously going to be a danger that they'll lock the, the patent into the UPC. The almost worse one might say is that we don't want them, neither the licensor nor the licensee are and helped by one of them going off on their own and and, and doing something within the UPC, it will be very important that the two of them coordinate what they do. And of course, they'll need to coordinate across all the relevant uh, countries because there are many opportunities for um, patent litigation strategies of different types uh, within the UPC. Additional point just to mention uh, is that um, a licensee under patent applications uh, might be concerned as, as to whether the um, patent will grant as separate national patents or, or whether it will grant as a, a unitary patent. Uh, it's for the license or the patent owner to decide this at the time of, of grant. So the background is that the the that the um, patents will be applied for through the European Patent Office in, in the way that we're used to. Uh, and at the end of, of the application procedure, there'll be a grant, uh, either of a bundle of patents, separate patents, or a unified patent, sorry, a unitary patent, um, plus probably some extra uh, single patents. Uh, so it's possible that the, the licensee is likely to want a say in whether the or goes for a unitary patent uh, or a bundle of separate patents.
0: Okay thank you very much that's really helpful and just turning to our second point now and picking up on a point that you've just mentioned Astrid around the rights of an exclusive licensee thinking now about the exclusive licensee's right to sue under a patent license agreement. So one of the rights granted to an exclusive licensee under the UK Patents Act is the right to take action against infringers in its own right and so to recover its loss of profit. Recent case law has, however, suggested that licences that reserve to the licensor, the right to control litigation, may put this right at risk. How much of a problem is this, Melissa? Well,
2: thanks, Charlie. Um, that's right. So, under under the UK Patents Act at the minute, exclusive licensees have have the same right as a proprietor to take any infringement action. And it is actually very common for um, important licensees to, to play quite a major role in any patent actions. After all, Um, as exclusive licensees they're often making substantial investment into projects in relation to product development they're responsible for development manufacture and sale and they often expect quite high high and substantial profits as a result of those projects Um, and actually in in a recent case as you Pointed out, um, Neuron Pharmaceuticals and generics, the High Court did hold that um, certain terms um, of the litigation clauses in the patent licence relating to their relationship um, did effectively have um, have the effect of removing that licensee's independent rights of rights to sue um, as part of patent infringement, and this was deemed to be the case because. Um, certain provisions in the infringement um, proceeding section essentially gave the patentee extensive control over any um, infringement proceedings. And as a result, the court deemed um, the licence to be a non-exclusive one rather than an exclusive licence. And this was despite the fact that um, there were express terms and the the wording in the grant clause did actually refer to it being an exclusive license, which is certainly quite interesting. Um, And I guess the the problem in this um, lies with the fact that as a result of being a non-exclusive licensee, they have no statutory right to sue and would not be able to recover any loss of profit from the infringer. Um, And the patentee, whilst they still have the right to sue, um, they would only be able to recover lost royalties rather than any licensee's lost profit, which are, un- are very likely to be um, considerably more than any uh, lost royalties.
0: Okay, so there's effectively a gap between what what can be claimed and um, what could be claimed if the uh, licensee was able to sue. So what do the parties need to do about
2: it? The immediate takeaway from this case would be a recommendation that both parties review and potentially adjust any litigation provisions in the licence that relate to the control of infringement actions, essentially to take into account the point we've just discussed. Um, We understand that this case has now actually been settled, however I think it's it's one to really look out out for in the future and it's very very, um, possible that it could go up to the Court of Appeal or a similar concept could go up to the Court of Appeal especially as the judge in the case at the time did point out that this point had not been covered by previous authorities. So it's definitely a, a space to watch, but there are actions that parties can take in the time being.
0: Great. Thanks very much, Melissa. And moving on to our third topic of this podcast, which is Brexit. I suppose we can say that Brexit has now been done for over a year, but
1: Astrid, what issues still remain? Well, one issue is um, ambiguity in relation to the definitions in in pre-IP completion day licences. This remains a cause of concern and dispute in some cases, in particular the question whether the definition of the EU includes the UK. So, of course, there then also remains a need to check definitions in any agreements entered into before 31st December 2020 and, of course, to adjust any standard form templates and so on. I think the major issue, though, uh, um, which still remains, is the effect of Brexit on the ability to enforce the license agreement in the EU 27 countries. For cases commenced before 31st December 2020, so before the end of the transition period, um, established EU rules under the recast Bus Brussels regulation governed the question of jurisdiction and also provided an easy enforcement mechanism for UK judgments in other EU member states. This regulation also provided for interim cross border measures, uh, which are very relevant to IP um, cases, of course. Unfortunately, Brussels recast no longer applies for cases commenced from 1st January 2020. And as yet, uh, the UK has been unable to achieve independent membership of the Lugano Convention, uh, which would have provided many of the same safeguards as Brussels. The UK is, however, a member of the Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements, which provides for the enforcement of exclusive jurisdiction clauses as between countries where the Convention applies, and and this includes the EU27 as as well as a number of others. So, as we actually explained in our earlier podcast on disputes, which is episode five, if anybody would like to go back, um, this makes it important to commit to an exclusive jurisdiction clause wherever possible to get the benefit of the Convention. The Convention makes it easier to enforce English judgments in Hague states, and um, that includes the EU27. A separate point, uh, a small point really, is that in multi-jurisdictional licenses, um, the parties should also consider appointing an agent for service within the English jurisdiction. This should avoid the need to obtain permission to serve out of the jurisdiction, so that can be very useful in in practice. And of course I just mentioned that arbitration is always an option and will avoid many of these issues, so there are many reasons for choosing an arbitration clause, uh, rather than an exclusive courts clause. Um, we went into that in, in, in quite a lot of detail in episode five, so I recommend you go back to that to hear more on that. They're all a winner. All the episodes.
0: <laughs> all the episodes. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Astrid. Um, looking now at the TTB, uh, the Technology Transfer Block-, Block Exemption Regulation, one of the questions that we're often asked is about the relevance of um, this regulation post-Brexit. The bottom line is that Both the technology transfer block exemption regulation and the Commission guidelines that um, support it are still relevant to patent licences in the UK after Brexit. So Melissa, could you please explain why it is that we're still looking to EU competition law on this despite Brexit?
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you, Charlie. I guess the first point to mention here is that Article 1, which is basically in place act against anti-competitive agreements and arrangements continues to apply in the EU 27, just as it did before. And the question of whether an international patent license does infringe that Article 101 will depend on the potential effect of trade within the EU and not just on the domicile of the parties involved in that patent license. So depending on the circumstances, whilst um, the EU Commission may not be able to enforce directly against a UK domiciled company, it is likely that if that UK company has relevant assets um, in the EU27, they may be able to enforce against those relevant assets. So that's really important to, to understand and take away. And In cases where Article 101 does apply, the block exemptions and the EU Commission's guidance on this Article 101 would also continue to apply. That's right. And so, what about the position in the UK itself? So, the Chapter 1 prohibition in the English Competition Act of 1998 essentially tracks Article 101, and it's just in respect of the UK. So, the question of whether the chapter one prohibition is infringed will depend on a number of different factors and one one of the significant factors to take into consideration would be the potential effect of any given agreement on trade within the UK itself. So the block exemptions have been amended to apply in relation to the UK only and now appear as something called the retained block exemptions so it's important that you know bringing your agreement in line with this retained retained block exemption will avoid any infringement of that chapter 1 prohibition so so yes it is it's um important that both the technology transfer regulations and commission guidelines continue to be relevant to patent licenses after brexit And I think in due course, we potentially expect the UK government to carry out consultation on any potential amendments um, that may be made to the retained technology transfer block exemption, as we've seen it done recently in relation to, for example, the the vertical agreements block exemption. So it will be interesting to see whether there are any further developments in relation to that.
0: Yes, great. Thank you. So in the context of our patent and know-how licensing, Um, What are the main provisions then we need to be aware of?
2: So in our experience, there there seem to be two common points and cause of concern for for parties, and these are improvements and no challenge clauses. So I'll I'll discuss the improvements point first, which essentially um, sometimes these improvement and exclusive grant back clauses are put in, and these are grant back or assignment obligations for licensee improvements that are made throughout the term of a license. Um, And these are essentially excluded restrictions under the transfer technology block exemption. This means that they don't have the benefit of the essential safe haven provided by this exemption. On the other hand, provided they can be severed from the rest of the agreement, the rest of the licence can continue to benefit from that exemption even if the grant back is judged to be anti-competitive. It's quite common that a licensee, wishing to avoid those um, exclusive grant back clauses will argue that it's impermissible because it's an anti-competitive restraint. However, it's by no means the case that all exclusive grant backs will be unenforceable and there are quite a few factors that are taken into account to consider this um and the first one would be whether or not there is any consideration involved in that grant back clause and then the position of the licensor is also factored in and whether the, whether or not they're a dominant party and then whether the grant back is imposed across the board or just only in some fields is also a key factor that is taken into account and then finally whether that is um whether the any improvements are essentially severable, meaning, can they be used without infringing the original patent? And it's common that if grant backs of non severable improvements are in place, they're more likely to be accepted.
0: That's right. So it's very fact specific, isn't it? You need to look at the particular circumstances in each case. Okay, so what about no challenge clauses?
2: Well, so, so no, no challenge clauses provide that essentially the licensee is not able to challenge the validity of a patent under a license. So, such clause operates as an important safeguard for the patentee, um, especially because a licensee is the one carrying out work very closely in relation to the technology. And in fact, they'll be in a very good position to assess whether that technology has any weak spots in relation to validity of the patent. But there are a number of competition law concerns in relation to these. And a straight no challenge clause in a license is unlikely to be enforceable for a number of reasons. And there are some exceptions to this particularly in relation to settlements, So, if a a no challenge clause was was included as part of a settlement agreement in relation to a potential dispute from a licence, it's possible that 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 may be allowable. But generally speaking, no challenge clauses are unlikely to be enforceable. On the other hand, there are different types of no challenge clauses that may be Enforceable, such as the right to terminate if a licensee does challenge the validity of a patent. These may be accepted in the context of an exclusive license. A no challenge and termination clause such as that may put pressure on the licensee who essentially risks infringement if their challenge turns out to be unsuccessful. So that's a really interesting point. So it's certainly not the case that all licences are dealt with in the same way in relation to this legislation. A less strict approach applies to know-how only licences. Here, a provision allowing the licensor to terminate if the licensee challenges the secrecy of any know-how is unlikely to be objectionable, even if it's a non-exclusive licence. This generally is is the case because it acknowledges the frailty of know-how as an asset. Great
0: thank you very much Melissa. Well that brings us to the end of this podcast episode and to the end of our current series. We've covered quite a few topics in this series but if you'd like to hear our thoughts on a particular topic relating to patent and know-how licensing that we haven't covered then please do get in touch and let us know. Thank you very much to the team to Astrid and Melissa for joining me for your words of wisdom and thank you everyone for listening. That's goodbye for now.